Gentlemen, you have tuned yourself into another episode of the Music the Lifeblood podcast. I am your very humble host, Dustin. This is an extra special, ultra mega edition of Music the Lifeblood. Why? Because John Christ. That's why. John is notable for having been the founding guitarist of Danzig and has went on to release Flesh Caffeine, his solo debut album in 1999. He is also a teacher at Carroll Community College and Coffee Music as well as he is currently breathing a breath of fresh air into the Johns Hopkins Peabody Institute as a titan of music instruction. John and I had a great conversation. We touched base on all kinds of things. Everything from his thoughts on the 30th anniversary of the first Danzig album, his openness to a potential reunion, music industry stories, creating music, his thoughts on Stevie Ray Vaughan and Rush, and so much more. Stick around because this one is going to be a rager. I want to take a minute and thank John for his openness and candor so that I could geek out on him for over an hour. Absolutely amazing to talk to John. Don't forget, I want you guys to go check out what John has going on. You can find him on Instagram at thejohnchrist and at www.johnchrist.com. All right, that's it for the opening. Let's get on to the interview. Join with us via phone, the six-string extraordinaire, solo artist supreme, former Danza guitarist, John Christ. John, thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So I've always been curious. The, uh, the Your time in Danzig is pretty well cataloged. There's a lot of information out there. But what I'm really interested in is summer 1995, the Danzig touring cycle comes to an end for Danzig 4. You go home, you get up the next day. What's the first thought that went through your head? Thank God I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And it wasn't even the end of the, it was the middle of the touring cycle. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. What it did there yep, was yep. was there was there some trepidation on uh, sort of exiting it uh, at that midway point? Any kind of uh, any kind of feelings about it? Oh yeah, well it, you know when when you're contemplating uh, dissolving a marriage, you know it's intense. And it's, uh, it's not a decision one goes into lightly. And, uh, I would like to think that, um, you spend many hours thinking of ways to repair a relationship and open the lines of communication, uh, to try and keep things going. But then there are some times when, uh, people, are on their own journeys and they're heading in different directions. Um, so sometimes rather than, um, what, rather than initiate any direct ugly conflict, sometimes people just walk away. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. Those those first couple months uh, after the fact, you know, what what did you find yourself diving into anything artistic right away? Was it a sort of cool down period for you? What what was life like at that point? Well, it took a while for my toes to touch the ground again. You know, it was like a huge weight was lifted. Um, music was lasting on my mind. Mm. Uh, it was just, it was, it was more like, um, looking at myself and taking care of me and my family and my friends and my girlfriend and enjoying every moment of, you know, every barbecue was summertime. It was July 5th. So everybody was getting together and, uh, you know, I wasn't advertising to all my friends and family what was going on. Um, they lived it with me for a long time. So it was just, I was just trying to have a good time and relax. And, uh, you know, I wasn't in the planning stages for, okay, next I'm going to do this. Next I'm going to call that person. Next, <laughs> you know, sure, sure. in hindsight, perhaps that would have been a better plan. <laughs> but at the time, um, emotions were leading the charge. So it was more or less, you know, take a break, relax, and, uh, and, be with family and friends and, uh, you know, enjoy life a little bit. It was a beautiful summer in California in 95. Gotcha. I was missing Chuck Biscuits a lot, you know. Without him, it wasn't the same. And Joey Castillo is no slouch when it comes to drums, that's for damn sure. Uh, but right. arguably, you know, much different of a player than what Chuck was. Do you feel like... Uh, it was did did the dynamic did it really really sort of splinter from a from an active band standpoint his personality it, it, yeah, yeah yeah it was um you know it was it was like um well like the bar stool that he sat on when he played drums you knock off one leg and what happens uh, good point. You know, he sat up on that bar stool, and it was the funniest thing in the world to see him hunched over up there. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost like he leaned on it, and and he just slammed the drums from up above. I've never seen anybody play that way before or since. I think he, he always played that way. I was looking at a, a couple pictures of uh, his time he spent in Black Flag, and that's one of the things that I noticed, too. Um, I hadn't uh -huh. seen, I haven't seen anything from the DOA days from sort of behind the drum kit, but I thought right. it was, it was always right. interesting. I've, I've played drums since I was young and that's one of the things I was like, how do you get the, uh, the momentum off of your right foot to, to bounce the right way? But I mean, well, he, he studied his brother Dimwit, his big brother mm. and, um, Dimwit was a great drummer and he was like, uh, a giant. <laughs> he was like two men in one. Um, when he played a drum set, you could just watch the pieces break <laughs> while he played. <laughs> Sweet. I mean, he had so much power and so much precision, and he played with so much feel. He didn't sit as high as Chuck did, but he was a very large man. Yeah. And uh, when he hit the drums, they shuddered. 
<laughs> and the whole kit vibrated from the impact. And Chuck was a little bit smaller, but she was still, you know, a good six foot, six one, something like that. And, uh, and where Dimwood could get a lot more forearm action, um, on the snare and the toms, Chuck would lift his elbow high and slam the sticks down. And uh, he played with DC-10 sticks a lot. And the way he made his snare sound, and a lot of guys do it, they kind of hit um, the head and the rim at the same time, not like your classic rim shot, but mm -hmm. sort of a hybrid. Sure, sure. And when doing it as hard and as fast as he did, he would uh, sometimes hit his knuckles on the rim and at the same time be punching his thigh. So he had this huge callus on his thigh, and his hands would be a bloody mess on the road. I'm sure you've been there, but uh, it was it was quite I don't know quite the phenomenon. Hmm. Are you you I, you've played with a lot of drummers, obviously over you know over your career. Do you find are you attracted to that kind of drummer, sort of Chuck's sort of this kind of school of Bonham. Everybody's individual. Everybody has their own sound, their own voice, and their own style. So I um, I take people where they are and and see how we blend, mm. you know. Um, that was, oh, man. That, I mean, Erie Vaughn on bass and Chuck Biscuits on drums and myself on guitar, it was just, and Glenn on vocals, it was it was an incendiary combination. Um, you know, just those sounds they just they just work together. Mm. They just fit. Joey Castillo, he was just an all around great guy. I mean, you know, we loved we loved a lot of the same stuff growing up. A C D C and Ted Nugent mm. and a bunch of it, Judas Priest and the heavy metal and his cousin Lazy um, Josh Lazy, who was a drum tech and bass tech at the time, I think it was a bass tech at the time, you know, he would sing and play bass and sound check, you know, we would do ACDC songs, <laughs> yeah. you know, or Judas Priest songs, Ted Nugent songs, it was a lot of fun, we had a great time, and even um, I did a, a Nugent tribute thing for one of the NAMM shows, and uh, Joey played drums for that, we had a blast. Nugent rumor has it that he strings his guitars pretty tight, and it's difficult to get a note to bend out of that thing. Have you, uh, have you ever gotten? No, nah. no, no. They're not, no, uh, -uh. no. I mean, he, he's standard. Uh, he might have his own tricks with the Birdlands because they're pretty hot and they're difficult to to wrangle. You know, you got to spend some time on the stage with the amps and getting everything just right. Uh, but I mean. It depends. I mean, if he's if he's got a a four or five piece band, then he's tuned up to standard. If he's got a three piece power trio, he's down a half step, and and he's just using twelve or thirteen. So they're they're stiff, but they're not they're not out of out of, out of hand. Mm, mm. Were you in the old days? I would have thought they were man. How can you play on these heavy strings? But now I play on much heavier strings and heavier picks and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of figured it out. What caused the, what caused the change for you? Um, uh, well, after I left the band, um, I started actually even before, while I was still in the band, Erie Vaughn got me hooked on Stevie Ray Vaughn. Oh, nice. Uh, 
And I started listening to a lot more of that. And that was probably one of the first things I did after I left the band was I, I started looking around at guitars and a neighbor out where I live, um, had an SRV strap for sale, a right-handed guitar with a left-handed vibrato arm. So I picked it up for 750 bucks and commenced to learning all four of Stevie Ray Vaughan's albums. <laughs> Good Lord. You know, plus this, this guy's crying. So I just sat there for months and just, it was, you know, I just digested the stuff, started jamming with a couple of guys from the gym, Gold's gym out there where I lived and, uh, just started playing a lot of blues, you know, and having a lot of fun with it and, uh, helped strengthen my hands a lot. And then after the accident, um, you know, it took, took years to get up to where, um, I could play on the thicker strings again, uh, but it was also uh, therapeutic because I I played a lot more acoustic guitar than I ever had, and mm. uh, part of my therapy was to try and play everything on acoustic guitar that I played on electric guitar uh, just as fast, um, and uh, and that took years too. But then then I started to get the really strong, powerful grip. And uh, and that helped. It was a car crash, right? I think that's how you messed up your hand, right? No, it was a truck. Was yeah, a, okay. I was driving a truck, garbage truck, and I was delivering it to an auction for uh, my partner's dad. And um, the uh, had a blowout in the front left wheel and cartwheeled it into the center divider, and I got ejected through the windshield into oncoming traffic and got hit on the freeway by people going the other direction. Good God, man. Yeah, so the fingers in my left hand uh, were, were just hanging on by the skin. And uh, so they, they pretty much put me back together again. Wow. I remember having found that out about you, and I instantly thought of Tony Iommi losing his fingertips. You know, a lot of people heard about it. I started a blog, a MySpace thing, 100 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. And never finished it and just started the story. And then people started asking me about it. And then at first I didn't, I didn't say too much about it, you know? Right. Um, and of course nobody knew about it until years later. Cause I was kind of out of the scene there for a long time. Was it, was it post or pre flesh caffeine? Um, it was post post. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I, the, I'm always curious, the as guitar players, sort of uh, their developmental process as they age, how their playing changes from day one to day, you know, year 50, whatever the case is. Do you feel like it, did it alter your technique quite a bit? Well, aging has, yes. <laughs> you know, I go back every once in a while, I'll stumble across um, a little blurb from the very first Dan's at Home video where I'm in a dressing room somewhere and they're just filming my two-minute thing where I'm talking about how girls are jealous of my guitar or <laughs> some stupid, <laughs> immature, <laughs> wannabe guitar guy thing, you know, and, and throwing out some Ingve Malmsteen licks that I was trying to steal and some other stuff, you know, but playing at a high rate of speed with, with, with it was all speed and no feeling at that point, you know, mm. uh, the, the bluesier stuff and the, and the rhythm stuff that we did, you know, I had a lot more feeling. And, and as the albums progressed, you know, I, I 
back the truck up and slow the tempos down and and try to really get inside the music and let the music get inside of me and come out from a different place. Sure, you know, take sure. the ego out of it a little bit. You know, as guitar players and growing up in the shredder era, it was the old Mozart too many notes thing, you know. Sure, sure. Not to be not not to be confused with um Steve Morse too many notes. You can look that one up. Oh, I know. I'm familiar with Steve Morse, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that was just a bad pun. But anyway, he's he was an amazing guy. Uh and a really nice guy, an amazing influence. You don't hear much of his playing. Um I don't quote much from him, but his um ethic, his practice ethic and his work ethic and some of the routines mm. that he does I still use <laughs> thirty years later. Right. You know. Right. You mentioned uh Stevie Ray. Are you a blues guy otherwise? Are you into Texas, Chicago, Delta Blues? What's are you in any of it? Um I'm, I'm into all of it. You know, um he was probably my favorite because of his aggressive style mm. and the way that um, he unabashedly copied his idols and got away with it <laughs> and even improved upon their techniques sure. and ideas in many cases. You know, I mean, not too many people can uh, cover Little Wing by Hendrix and have it become you know, a legacy of his own. Mm, yeah. I think about his, I think about his appearances on Austin city limits. I thought, oh yeah. Those are cl classic. Oh my man. It, it blows me away still every time I watch it. You know, and I think he was sober at the time there, wasn't he? He, well, he did a couple. I think, uh, there was, okay. I, the, the latter ones, the latter ones when he played the white strat and he did leave my girl alone and all that. I think he was sober for, I think the earlier ones he was still partying. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. you know, the ones that were just drove me nuts where well, I love those. And, and when I first started watching those, it was still VHS tapes, right? <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> and, um, and live at the Macombo. And that was another one. I don't know where I got a hold of that stuff, but, uh, some fan or another guitar player and my roommate at the time, Noel Masson was, uh, he still is technical operations manager for Channel 9 Australia in Hollywood. All right on. Uh, Australia, you know, Channel 9, they had, at the time, they had bureaus in LA and New York and London. Now I think it's just LA and London. Um, so sometimes I would go into, into his television studio and they had all those great Datamatic VHS decks and everything. So I could go in there and watch, um, the tapes at slow motion at half speed and other speeds and you could oh, still listen okay. to it. Wow. And I would retune and, and then eventually ended up just going in there for hours and making copies at slow speeds. So I would just, cause I seen the, the standard speed so many times that uh, when I saw the recorded speeds, uh, I knew where all the licks were and everything. And I just kind of analyzed and dissected what he was doing and, including the way he spins around and plays the guitar behind his back and his head and all that kind of fun stuff. So mm -hmm. that that was like a, a research project, you know. I'd like to say I, I could have gotten a B.A. and Stevie Ray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
He's he him I I think of that. I always think of that. I think it's the first time that he played uh Voodoo Child's slight return on Austin City Limits. And mm-hmm. I remember just my jaw dropped at how he just nailed it on the head. It was it was unreal. Mm-hmm. It was unreal. Are you a sort of a or have you ever been a sort of a obsessive player? Are you someone that you've got a guitar in your hand constantly, or do you like to put it down and walk away from it for a little while? I go through stages. You know, uh, I don't do anything halfway. Um, I wish I could compartmentalize everything. I'd be a lot more organized. <laughs> mm. I'm still working on that skill set right now. Uh, but, yeah, when I get into it, you know, I, I stay into it. Um, to where, like, if I have a gig coming up, uh, when I go to bed, I'll practice in bed without the guitar, just visualizing in my mind, you know, and I'll go over the songs because I've memorized it so I can hear all the notes in my head, and whether it's a Paganini violin piece or Stevie Ray Vaughan or Lit, My Own Worst Enemy, or who knows, whatever it is, um, you know, I, I get the music in my head and I sing it and I work on the parts and and it's even I work on the trouble spots and where the mistakes are like you know it's every once in a while I gotta go back over songs like Eruption and Satch Boogie and stuff just Mm. for vocabulary sake you know and I'll go over and I'll go oh I forgot this part oh I forgot that run and I'll try and work it out just in my mind while I'm waiting to fall asleep you know so to me, that's a normal everyday thing, and and my wife goes, no, that's kind of weird, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of people lie there for hours in practice <laughs> with their eyes closed, right? Without an instrument. <laughs> but it could, I, so, you, it could be, it could be what separates, you know, the wheat from the chaff. You know, it's, uh, it could, it could be what uh, keeps you in the sort of the top tier, though. Well, I've learned that. Um, through my development, and, and you touched on this earlier, it's a good segue. As I'm aging, um, it's, you know, when I'm practicing, um, that's the time to focus on technique. That's the time to focus on discipline, uh, the mechanics, the craft mm-hmm. of the guitar and feeling the guitar and the sounds of it being completely tuned into the feel, the vibrations, everything. You know, you even need to sync your breathing with the phrases uh, to be just completely one with the instrument. So that's the mechanics of it. And uh, so the more experience you have now, you know, decades of it, right? Um now, for me, it's just, what is it going to take me in my mind to get to the place where I can forget all of that and just listen to the music? Because my hands know what to do. Mm. I, don't need to, I don't need to watch my hands. I don't need to tell them what to do. I don't need to tell them where to go. I don't need to look at chords or scales or any of that. Uh, now, it's just about clearing all of the modern world static out of my head. So I can just focus on the melody, the harmony, the rhythm, uh, the emotion of what this song is about, and the people who wrote it, recorded it, whatever. Or if it's one of mine, getting into that space, you know, where I was when it, it 
just kind of came to me or I discovered it or explored or whatever. Um, and it's fun with covers, you know, so it's almost like a kind of a Zen thing, you know, when you just focus on one thing, then you know everything. And instead of trying to focus on everything, mm. you just, you just listen. You, you try and, I call it tapping in. Yeah, I try and tap into the source, you know. Mm. So when I'm preparing to play, I, I try and just focus on the source. You know, that thing that got me high the first time when I was a little kid, when I heard Tom Schultz in Boston, you know, playing more than a feeling nice. or Tony Iommi playing paranoid and war pigs or, you know, uh, Jimmy Page playing since I've been loving you, Jimmy Hendrix playing manic depression, you know, Hey Joe cross down traffic, Foxy lady, go <laughs> on and on and yeah. on. You know, first time you really sat down with pride and joy and tried to figure it out and went, Holy shit, this is hard. <laughs> you know, plug into that that universal source. Some people call it the muse, whatever, the energy, whatever. That's what I'm trying to get to. So I don't think about the guitar. It's just, those are just details that my hands and feet can take care of. Is that something you can teach to your students? You know, can you articulate it? That's what, I, can you that's articulate what I'm working it? on. Yeah. Yep, yep. And the challenge is, articulating it to them with their own words and experiences because <clears throat> what I've experienced uh, most of them have never and will never so I have to take them where they are right here right now and learn about their life and their experience and and what turns them on mm. and what turns them off and what their challenges and di difficulties are and how I can lead them to the source. Mm. There's almost a, it's almost kind of an existential experience. If you will. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's because it's art, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we love music, and we can categorize it any way we want. Um, but in the bigger picture, in the universal picture of what it is, what it has done for man from the beginning, it's the same thing. It's all the same thing. Just different details. Hmm. I I always think of I always sort of think of that uh, that primordial thing that takes over. Sometimes when you you can watch a band on stage and they're in sort of the the throes of it. It's kind of like that sort of voodoo element that they're they're going to another mm -hmm. place. Have you have you ever, have you had the experience where one of your students have sort of ascended to that level? Have you seen that firsthand? I I've seen I've seen seconds of it. I've seen moments of it. Mm. And that's, and most often that's how it appears, just in, in moments. Not, you can't even put it into modern time, you know, because that wouldn't do it justice. It, it can be fleeting. Sometimes it can arrive unexpectedly, linger for a bit, and then 
Other times, it's just a flash. It's mm-hmm. just a fingering, or it's just a clear fretted note for the first time ever. I have a four-year-old ukulele student, and, uh, the, you know, one of her last lessons, you know, she got two sequential notes in a row right for the first time ever, and it was complete magic, and she heard it and felt it, and her parents did too. Wow. What's the emotion that you experience when when that happens? It's always different. It's different. It's completely unique. Mm. You know, um, as a teacher, it's different than it is as an artist. You know, um, because as a teacher, then you're a witness. You're not directly involved in it. You feel, you want to feel, your ego wants you to allow you to feel a sense of responsibility for it, you mm. know. But but my responsibility is just to get out of the way and let it happen. You know, try and promote the environment and encourage it, but then just just step back and let it happen. Sure. And and you can't force it. It's it's going to happen in its own place and time if it happens at all. You know, so when you are fortunate enough to witness it, it does feel good. And what really feels good is when I see posts on Instagram and Facebook where students or neighbors of mine that I taught when we were kids in high school, you know, been playing in bands for 20 years now. You know, and that's kind of, and I had no clue. And it's like, wow, so, you know, maybe I wasn't a complete asshole the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Are you are you a taskmaster? Are are a taskmaster? Are you strict? What kind of a teacher are no, you? No, not anymore. Not anymore. I gave all that up. Now I don't care if you practice or not. It's your choice. It's your life. It's your decision. Um, if in my lessons I tell my students that you know sometimes they come in and they're so wound up, I feel so much static coming off of them. Mm. That I won't even let them tune the guitar up for a while. We'll turn the lights off and we'll sit quietly, you know, just because they need to calm down and I need to calm down <laughs> because their, you know, their energy is like winding me up. And uh, I know that in order to connect with them and them to connect with the music, they need to just like take a break from the world. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like coming in from a blizzard. And you got to shake all the snow off your hair and off your clothes and off your boots and all that kind of stuff. And it takes a few minutes by the time you get a cup of hot chocolate and sit down by the fire and just let your hands just start to heat up and warm up, you know, that process to then finally you're like, okay, now, now I can focus. It's the same thing. We're under so much pressure from the world, uh, that to, to relax, you know, to open the channels and just to be able to focus a concentration our concentration is pulled in so many directions you know we're so plugged in all the time um, that sometimes some students will come and I'll be like you know what you're too wound up you just relax I'll play for you <laughs> and, and I've had lessons that, with that where we don't play at all I just tell jokes and tell stories and, and we have a great time you know, and and they can ask me musical questions or touring stories or recording stories or whatever. Mm. And I'm still, you know, they're still getting information. They're still getting the benefit of my experience. 
because when I have questions, how do I do this and how do I do that? And I'll say, well, this is how I did it. Had I time to do it over again, I wouldn't do that. You know, and in the last year, I've thrown all the books away. I've thrown everything out. Everything I was using before, all the schools and colleges I teach at, I stopped everything. And, um, you know, I've centered it now completely on the student and where they are and what they want and what their experience is. And some of them, the young ones, it's easier because you just give them direction and guidelines and they just go. They don't need any extra information. Mm. Where I've got some people in their 60s and 70s and their analytical brains, they want to be, I can break down every, just about every thought they need to think before they put their hands on the instrument and what it's supposed to feel like when they strike the note with Alma with the pick. And, you know, so the more detail I can give them each and every motion from threading one note on one string to crossing a string to palm muting to left-hand finger muting or fretting hand finger muting. Mm. I have a couple of left-handed students, and that's a new adventure in writing out music for left-handed tablature because <laughs> everything is, it's like you take a right-handed book, you turn it upside down, and you read it backwards, and that's what it is for a left-handed guitar player. So, um, you know, but it's working, and the students are enjoying it much more than they have in the last five years. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm going with now. Hmm. Do you find it, is there, do you get a different kind of, uh, is it rewarding in any kind of a different way? Oh, it's totally rewarding because now I do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if, if the student is coming in and they're a little resistant for whatever, then I just stop talking and start playing. And, uh, just showing off as much as I feel like it. And that usually shuts them up in short notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my ensembles too. Cause I, you know, I have ensembles come in and groups and all varying levels and this and that. Sometimes even adult ensembles, they act like a bunch of kids when they come in. So I wait. And uh, if they don't calm down, then I'll pick up a guitar and I'll plug into an amp and I'll play extremely loudly for about two minutes <laughs> and just rock star the shit out of them. I can't. The, and then the, they just the the mental the, the mental image of John Christ just at you because he wants you to be quiet is is amazing. That's right. <laughs> You're, you're kind of talking about stuff that is on the sort of emotional wavelength, you know, being tuned into creative emotions and things like that. Are you, mm -hmm. would you call yourself an emotional guy? Do you lead with that when it comes to your creative process in your professional life? You know, where are you at on the spectrum? Well, for me in, uh, in the creative process, yes, but, now I'm working on developing uh, all the organizational skills necessary as a modern musician and entrepreneur to keep the money rolling in and keep the bills paid. You know, sure, sure. Back okay. in the old days of being in the band, I was spoiled rotten. We had a record company. We had managers. We had accountants. We had attorneys. 
we had promoters, uh, you know, we had guitar techs, had publicity people, uh, I mean, just everything, rehearsal spaces, everything was paid for. The record company was like a big old bank with unlimited credit, you know. So life, it was simple, you know. There were people, you didn't have to learn how to do everything. You just made some phone calls. There wasn't even email back then. And everything got done. Mm. You know, we got around fine without GPS. Go figure. <laughs> we recorded records without Pro Tools. <laughs> um, you know, so it was a different time. It was a different place. The world has changed dramatically. Mm. People have changed somewhat, but uh, the expectations and demands on the modern musician, it's almost, you know, I wouldn't say exponential, but algorithmic, perhaps. Sure. What we need to know, the knowledge uh, base is much broader, and the volume of material that we have to absorb, assimilate, uh, just to navigate our way through the modern industry Mm. you know, is significant, in mm. my opinion. And I don't really want to have to know all that stuff, but it's it's like a prerequisite now. Mm. You know, it's just what's expected. So, and that's the thing, you know, most of the big labels are all phased out. Um, the ones that are still there, what have they done? They've created America's Got Talent, American Idol, you know, they've created all these reality shows where America decides what the next hit is. They can't lose. You know, they've got their next platinum album sellers right there on TV. <laughs> they sent out, you know, people to recruit them and audition them, and everybody wants the American dream, so they sell the American dream. And, uh, you know, the record companies and television networks and cable networks, they give it to them. They sell the American dream, and the American people provide the talent, and uh, the American consumers um, decide what they want, and uh, the industry has it so much easier, <laughs> because they can just sit back and run the show and and edit and produce the plot lines, and, and boom, well, there's our next tour. <laughs> There's their next three or four years, you know, we're going to make millions off of this kid and that lady and this group and blah, 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 blah. So they're, they are, they are surviving in that way. And then there's still a handful of startups, um, that can afford to spend some money on their perfect circles, you know, and, uh, the modern day Alice in Chains. You know what I mean? Sure. There's different incarnations because there are enough people in my generation now that are still, maybe they're not in their peak earning years, but their kids are now going to college and they're empty nesters so that they, they're going back to concerts again. They're going, they're spending money on entertainment. Yeah. They're consuming stuff. You know, they've got monster playlists. They want to get out of the freaking house. They realize that their parents are old and dying off and life is short. So now they want to go to shows again. So it's back to touring. It's back to performance. It's 
not about MTV anymore. It's not about advertising. It's about the live performance. Hmm. What was the last show you went to? <laughs> the last show, you know, it's like the last concert where I went through the whole routine um, as a concert goer was probably Rush. Oh, sweet. And I, and I went with my friends, a couple of guys from my friend's band, Half Serious, and um, they had some extra tickets, so I went to that. And that was a lot of fun because it. I was like, wow, you know, modern concerts are a lot different. Everything is video now. Everything is props. Mm. You know, the band is out there playing, but it's so much more of a visual show. You know, the music is almost secondary to, well, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's secondary, but uh, Rush, you know, is very thematic in their approach. Mm, yeah. Uh, but it was, it was good to see them out there doing it. Are you an Alex Lifeson fan? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Sweet. One of the, you know, one of the more really unique players stylistically um obviously taking a back seat to Getty Lee and Neil you know but still always seems to play the right thing at the right time with the right tone mm. and uh you know and and his phrasing you know he had that special phrasing you know to do that and I mean growing up we all had to learn spirit radio we all had to learn Limelight, we all had to learn Fly by Night, we all had to learn 2112 and the Trees, Red Barchetta, YYZ, <laughs> you know, we had to know all that stuff. He goes, he goes overlooked, in my opinion, he goes overlooked, and he's able to compete with Neil and Getty and hold his own, I just, I don't think enough people talk about it, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, that's a popularity thing, I mean, he played his role perfectly. Mm. You know, and so did Getty Lee. I mean, it wasn't Getty's band, you know? Mm. But um, some of the, you know, greatest bass lines ever played, there's so much going on, you don't hear it. You know, he's sort of like uh, Paul McCartney on steroids. Ah, yeah. Good comparison. Eh, I like it. <laughs> so, yeah. 30 years. We're hitting the thirtieth mm. anniversary of the self-titled album from Danzig. Any uh, any yeah. any sort of hot take thoughts on it? You know, I was hoping to get a phone call or an email or something. You know, saying, "Hey, come on out, let's play," uh, but hasn't happened. Mm. But that's life. You know, and I've I've planted some seeds out there. You know, I sent some couple of messages to some guys in his band and little comments here and there you know subtle some not so subtle uh but uh i think he's content doing what he's doing with the current group he's got but sure, sure. it would have been nice to go around you know at least do a couple of shows with the original lineup for the anniversary mm. i really wanted to do the gig in vegas you know that would have been cool to do a lot of the How the Gods Kill stuff. Yeah, the the entire album, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you have 
uh, I was I was just thinking about this the other day. I really thought to myself, I really want to ask John about this. When you guys were the process of creating the first album, do you remember the first final mix that you heard from that album? It's hmm, a good question. Um, the first final mix I heard from that album would have been some of the mixed cassette tapes. And there's a big difference. Well, it's not a big difference, but there's a noticeable difference from a final mix and a mastered copy. Mm, okay, yeah. Because they're still making adjustments and EQing, you know, in the mastering. But the promotional cassettes is what we got, the stuff that they're going to send out to the radio stations and magazines and all that kind of stuff okay. would be the first ones that we got. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really a rush. I tell you, um, two of my biggest thrills were the first time I heard Mother <clears throat> on my hometown radio station 98 rock in baltimore and that was like a huge thrill but the first time i heard it on the radio was riding down sunset boulevard in hollywood when we went out there to play the slayer show sweet and i can't remember if that was i want to say it was the summer of 88 um we did like half a dozen shows opening up for slayer just like a mini tour you know it was like la uh chicago detroit um maybe indy new york i think new york was the last show at the felt forum um so that was that was a total rush but hearing it driving down the road uh with uh, a close friend of mine a good buddy i was best man at his wedding uh, years later, but we were still, you know, kids. I was like 21, 22 years old, and um, we were driving in one of those old 80s Camaro, the cheesy ones, not the fancy ones. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? No spoiler, no fancy rims, but it was a Camaro. It had a V8, right? But as conservative as you could get, and we were driving down that, and we were just listening to KNAC, I think. And uh, we were talking. He didn't even recognize it. I said, wait a second. He's like, what? I said, turn that up. He's like, what? I said, that's mother. He's like, get out. You know, there it was. It was like, wow. And it sounded so different on the radio. There's something about the compression of mm. what happens to the mix and the song yep. when it's broadcast over the air and then received and transmitted into a car stereo is really wild. Mm. There's a difference. It's a lot smoother. The edges, all the rough edges have been rubbed off. It was pretty neat. Hmm. Something... And then just having the DJ talk over it, you know, it's like, wow, I've arrived. Yeah, it's that. It's kind of like the one of those top-of-the-mountain moments, I would imagine. Yeah, I look back at the pictures and I'm going, God, I was such a dork and I was trying so hard to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> there's always there's I there's there's always wardrobe, you know, choices that I think people regret oh. down the road. <laughs> I I had years of them. <laughs> yeah. I always 
when I listen to that first album now, I think, I don't know, Am I Demon is probably the one song that I've always really, really, really been pulled towards. And I always, mm-hmm. I always remember thinking about your guitar tone, uh, especially when it's put up against the backdrop of the sort of greater metal and rock music sort of scene, because you didn't sound like Billy Duffy from the Cult, and you didn't, mm-hmm. you did, you didn't sound like, you know, Dave Mustaine or Marty Friedman, Friedman from Megadeth. It was that it has that. I don't know what else to call it other than that sort of like Southern sort of thing that's added into it. It's like if you were to mix, you know, all the best parts of Eddie Van Halen, not overplaying and then Mm -hmm. and collide that with some like some Delta blues stuff. Did you, when when you were kind of, when you were honing in your sound at that point, did you feel like I'm kind of taking a chance this is a little too different than everybody else, or did you feel good about it? Did it feel like it was a you were making a good choice? Uh, you know, it was. It, I was learning so much, and it was so much experimentation was going on. Rick Rubin was great. I mean, mm. if there was um, a new amp out that was cool, you would rent it, and we would try it. Um, we would try, you know, tons of different Marshalls and. Getting sounds for the record was a big thing because uh, that Slayer show that we played in L.A., my bitch, B.C. Rich, the neck got broken on the plane. Um, oh, baggage man. handlers. So I had a Les Paul, um, but it didn't sound as good as the bitch. And I had to borrow, uh, I borrowed a B.C. Rich Mockingbird from Kerry King for that show, which mm-hmm. was amazing. Uh, and he would not sell it to me, and to this day, he will not sell it to me or anybody else, but it was this <laughs> amazing playing guitar. And uh, so when I got back to New York, um, Rick Rubin and George Trapulius and Scott Koenig, we all went out and looked at guitars on, uh, I think it was 48th Street uh, in, in New York City at the time, had Sam Ash music and a couple other places down there and a bunch of guitar shops. And mm. we went looking at Les Pauls and other guitars and he bought me a couple of Les Pauls, but they didn't sound right. So, uh, I started searching for tones and, um, ended up with, uh, a Paul Reed Smith guitar that had just come out mm-hmm. new. It was one of the first 10 tops, I think. But the it was all about the tone. I didn't care what it looked like or sounded like or anything. But I went in there and I tried every guitar in the store. I think I tried every guitar on the street <laughs> down there for days um, just trying to get the sound for Twisted Cane and Mother and M.I. Demon um, and Evil Thing. Uh, just try end of time, you know, just trying because I needed a guitar that was going to give me clean sounds as well as this powerful punchy sound, you know, so I could get big wide open G chords and B chords and E minor chords and A minor chords that would ring, but still had this edge to them. And when you overdrive, overdrive the amp and really give it some palm muting, it was going to give you a thunk, but not fuzzy. I hated that fuzzy. Um, too much pre-game, you know, 
sound. I didn't like, I just called it like this chap sound. I didn't want to hear that. I don't mean to offend anybody by that, but it was just too fuzzy and it sounded too electronic. That's mm-hmm. not what I was going for. So um, the engineers in the studio, as well as some guitar techs and uh, people in, in Sam Ash Music and a couple other stores, um, rented us different gear and SIR and uh, the the engineers really Steve Ed, I think was the guy that did a lot of recording that and Dave Bianco uh, really helped me with EQs that was my first experience with the Neve EQs and um, those things were amazing what these guys could do with that stuff and they were so fast and the placement of the mics and the volume in the room and this that and you know, where the baffles went and what microphones you can use and what length cables you can use and what mic pre are you going to use mm. and how much compression's going on it. And, you know, is it going to be wide open and do we want a condenser mic for the highs and this and that, you know, and all these different, I had no clue about any of this stuff and it was like, wow, it was a whole new world, you know. Mm. So that process was, was crucial. Um, and the idea was we were just trying to get sound that we had in the rehearsal room on tape and it's just you, you just don't go into a studio set up your rig throw a microphone and play and have it sound like rehearsal it just doesn't work that way right. when it comes off the tape you know that's why these engineers are specialists that's why you need a producer to make hard decisions you know when you've tried a million things and it's like well do I go for a million and one or do we call it good? Hmm. What was your relationship like with Rick Rubin? I thought he was great, man. I thought, you know, we connected uh, during my audition process. And, uh, you know, he had a great ear, has a great ear. And um, he loved, he just loved being in the studio. Hmm. He just loved recording records. That was his favorite place on earth. The only other place he really loved was professional wrestling at the time when I met him. (laughs) But he just loved to be in the studio. You know, for him, having to leave the studio to go home to sleep was a drag. Mm -hmm. If he could have slept in the studio, he would. I'm sure on many nights he did. but, um, But he was good because we talked about tone and we talked about feel and and he would tell me to go listen to certain songs and, you know, certain Zeppelin songs and Aerosmith songs and ACDC songs and listen to this tone and that tone and this drum sound and that sound and, you know, this vibe and that pocket, you know, that groove. Do you feel this? Do you feel that? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? Hmm. And, uh, and, and it was a relief because he, he could converse musically he understood a lot of technical things about music where Glenn and Yuri and Chuck just didn't, you know, they were just like, make it louder, make it this, make it that, make it raw, blah, 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 blah. You know, they, they weren't up on, on the terminology and, and the technical side of it and the technique side and craft. They were just hear it, try and get it on the instrument, try and get it recorded. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know that raw creation thing, which was which was awesome. That's where the energy came from. So it was sort of the combination of the two. 
uh, and Rick understood all of it. And, um, you know, he was a vital part of, uh, of, of the sound, the original sound. I mean, he came in with ACDC's Back in Black album, and this was every record he ever did with us, not just the first one. And, uh, you know, he put in Back in Black and say, okay, let's try and get drum sounds. The snare sounded like that, the kick and snare. Mm. And we'd start with that. And then the first week of basics, it was all about just getting the drum groove right, the drum sound, and he would sit there and close his eyes and rock back and forth. And if uh, the drum beat had to sound like a whole song just by itself, if it didn't, it wasn't good enough. So, you know, we recorded dozens and dozens of takes of a bunch of different songs and in more than one studio and scrapped it all and started over again on the first album. So hmm. we spent a lot of time and money on production. And I was, I'm glad because he didn't, you know, uh, Rick didn't compromise. He was willing to go to get it right. Hmm. What was the what was the creative process like during throughout those those first four albums? It was always different, you know. It, like initially, it was more of a the bands in a room rehearsing and doing things. After we got a couple under our belt, you know, I get a phone call from Glenn. He'd be like, "Go get your guitar." I'd be like, "All right." Got the song down, 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 like when Death had no name or something. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, and he said, ah, you know, I got two parts. What do you think it's this? But I said, let me play with it. And, you know, I'd play with it, come up with a bunch of variations. We did under rehearsal, you know, the middle of the week or something and, and bang stuff out. And um, sometimes he would have his guitar in the background unplugged and I would have mine unplugged and <laughs> you know we didn't have wireless <laughs> phones then everything was on a cable so <laughs> mine's propped up under my ear and I've got a, you know my head cricked to the side holding it while I'm listening to him my guitar on my lap <laughs> and he's doing the same thing on his end or I'm gonna put the guitar down you know so he's yelling in the background and his cats are meowing you know and uh, <laughs> we're coming up with ideas and Later on, he started bringing down a micro cassette recorder, and and it would just be, you know, just sounds, just humming sounds and noises and stuff, and a couple of comments here, occasional word, this and that, and we would sit together and work it out. The thing for me was, um, you know, I could, I can hear a sound, I can hear a grunt, I can hear a moan, um, I can hear. A and whatever it is and and pretty much translate it onto the guitar neck and i think that's that's what worked mm. you know rick could have to say try like blah, 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 and i would do it he said yeah 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 but do this and this okay and then i become this human guitar loop machine you know when we would go and if it wasn't going in the right direction gonna be like wait a minute give me that guitar and then we would have go off and everybody else would go off and get something to eat or shoot a game of pool or something, you know. I'm back, he just wanted to spend some time with whatever lyric he had or melody idea and trying to make something that matched it. Mm. And then he would he would bang out something and I oh, I'd be like, Oh, you're talking oh, you want it like that. Oh, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Okay. 
and then everybody would come back and we start playing. It's like, yeah, that's it, that's it, that's it, you know. And I can remember being in LA, uh, probably working on the second, third record. We had this old cheesy Panasonic dual cassette boombox that we recorded our rehearsals. <laughs> and I'm sure they're out there on the internet now, you know, the rehearsal tapes, but we did a lot of stuff that way. You know, the old, dual cassette player with a high-speed dubbing. Sure, sure. And that's what, that's what we were using, not too sophisticated, but it worked. Well, there's some, there's something to be said for being able to just kind of do it on the fly. As long as you get the idea, yeah. as long as you get the idea down, that's what I think usually what counts. Yep, yep, yep. And, and it, you know, there wasn't editing then. You know, mm-hmm. editing was called pre-production. And you you did what you could in pre-production and then that allowed room for spontaneity in the studio. Now, spontaneity in the studio is expensive, (laughs) but we had a label deal and uh, Rick Rubin was the producer and the owner of the label. So we had an advantage when it came to that. Oh, wow. Good point. Wow. There's a big difference from the first album to Lucifuge to Danzig 2. Um, I think a lot of people tend to talk about How the Gods Kill quite a bit, but I've always really, really gravitated towards Lucifuge because I think you guys took a quantum leap from A to B. Did you, when you guys were working on the material for Lucifuge or just recording the album, did it did it feel differently than it did on the first album? Yeah, everything is different. I mean, we moved to L.A., you know, we were no longer a Jersey band. Mm. Now we were an L.A. band. We, You know, the record label, Ruben preceded us. He moved out there first. Remember, when we were, before we recorded the first album, we helped Rick finish the uh, Lesson Zero soundtrack mm. okay. so that we could get some pre-production time with them. You know, that wasn't our choice. He was like, hey, I need to get this thing done. It's taken forever. I need a couple of more songs. Would you guys help out? And Glenn was like, sure. And he said, hey, what about Roy Orbison? And they brought Roy Orbison in, and they worked on the song together. And, hmm. you know, Erie and Chuck and I were the Power and Fury Orchestra, the backing <laughs> band. And yeah, man. they brought a string section in, and, you know, I got to be part of that whole thing. So that was actually my first professional recording was on the Lesson Zero soundtrack. Um, so that was just everything, you know, was new. By the time we got to LA, uh, we had the first album cycle under our belt. So, you know, we'd done videos, we'd done tours, we did the recording, we'd done interviews, you know, we were a bit seasoned, more seasoned. And, uh, we went to LA, you know, everything was different the energy, the place, the people, uh, the geography, you know, there's a whole new world out there. And the studios were different. They sounded different. And mm-hmm. The way they worked was different. And the schedules were different. And the weather was so incredibly different than in New York. You know, it was like, it was difficult to be a vampire in L.A. because to avoid that sun and stay pasty white, you know, you, you had to plan 
where the shade was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> were you were you as excited about the material on Lucifuge as you would have been the the self titled album? Oh yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, I really liked the bluesy direction we took, and Glenn between the first and second album was like, you know, I want you to listen to Willie Dixon and Howlin' mm, Wolf and mm. uh, Bo Diddley, you know, and Elvis Presley and Roy Orbison and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, Sun Records, you know, listen to all this. Uh, oh, Robert Johnson. We said, listen to Robert Johnson. I started, started listening to a lot more stuff. I still was, you know, a metalhead. Uh, I, I, you know, grew up in the 80s, you know, I mean, I had to, as a guitar player, I had to know all the Van Halen licks and the Satriani licks and the Steve Vai licks and the uh, Eric Johnson licks and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, now these guys are telling me to stop. None of that stuff. Stop at all. <laughs> hmm. You know, uh, the solos, no, you're not going to get a whole long solo. You're going to get, you know, maybe 20 seconds. You know, if that, you know, so, and the engineers are like, I know what you're trying to do, but, you know, you can't force it in. Let's try and just do a mean movie. I know, beginning, middle, and an end, right? Yep. And I can only come up with two of the three, <laughs> and there'll always be the one section that uh, was the difficult part, but those engineers are so good. I mean, Brandon O'Brien, who went on to become you know, just an incredible producer in his own right. When I met him, he just started with Ruben, and he just left his gig. He was lead guitar player for the Georgia Satellites, and he lived in Atlanta. And while we were doing the second album, he relocated his whole family out to L.A. to Woodland Hills. He had a couple of daughters and everything. We were just little kids. So he was like, I'm going to do everything Rick Ruben asked me to do. I'm not going to say no to anything. <laughs> and he was a great guitar player, great piano player, perfect pitch. I hated him. He was so good. But he helped me get really good sounds. And, uh, you know, he made me try really hard to, to get some cool guitar parts. So, um, you know, I contribute a lot of that. There's some really cool guitar licks. Um, and pain in the world, and killer wolf, and mm. blood and tears, and tired of being alive. Mm. Long way back from hell. So much fun. I mean, you just don't get to start a song with a dive bomb on guitar. <laughs> it just doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> but it worked. I mean, it, it, it worked. It's, it's crazy. And I remember Glenn in rehearsal saying, "Do a dive bomb." <laughs> There's you mentioned yeah. you mentioned blood and tears because I think to me that's one of the the I mean there's a bunch of high points on Lucifuge but that's one of the the really really standout songs on there. How did how did Blood yeah. and Tears come out? Because that is a oh, that man. is a straight up gnarly hard hitting ballad. Um, you know I think I. You have to ask Glenn that directly, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, my my impression, uh, it always kind of reminded me of him crooning, kind of like Roy Orbison type of thing. Sure, you know? sure. Little Elvis, little Roy Orbison. People always make the Doors comparison. I think that's just coincidental, you know. 
Uh, that was just a tonal comparison. Um, but, you know, Glenn, he loved to dig deep and get a big note and fill his chest with air and just, like, really let it roll, you know. And, uh, and, and but keeping consistent themes in his music, you know, is a challenge. So for him, that's what I was always like, wow, you know, how does he keep coming up with this dark stuff? You know, mm. <laughs> where is he, where is he getting it? Mm. You know, that's, that's where his talent and genius lied. You know, he'd come up with this stuff. Wow. And, um, Initially, I think I wanted to play, you know, the parts heavier and louder. And he's like, no, 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 it's got to be subtle. It's got to be soft. It's got to be really clean, you know. Yeah, but dude, that, that, that solo is so nasty. It is. It, oh, God, that thing. It gives, it gives me, every time I listen to it, dude, I'm, I've been listening to that song for 25 years. I don't know whatever it's been. And every time I listen to it, everything stops in the room okay then- so that's what that's what i'm talking about there you know those would have been days when i was fresh and got in there and i wasn't worried about what i was playing and i was just into the song and you know spent a lot of time with the engineer tweaking the rhythm guitars and here's one thing that i don't know you're a drummer i don't know as a guitar player when you're recording a record um before the vocals go down, before the overdubs go down, and when it's just a lot of guitar, man, the guitars sound great, okay? Mm. They sound so huge. The more mixing and producing it's done and overdubs, by the time the album is mastered and comes out, the guitars sound like shit. They just sound horrible Mm. compared to what they sound like in the recording process. They're fat, they're huge, I mean, they're just like this wall of guitar. It's just heaven, right? Before the vocals and the keyboards and overdubs and stuff go in. Because what happens is, as you add all that stuff, there just isn't sonic, the landscape. There isn't enough real estate for everybody. Mm. All the frequencies. You know what I mean? They start competing for space and something's got to go. And it's like, you know, well... Uh, yes, I'm a lead guitar player, but it's not my band, and there has to be some lead vocals in here somewhere. So, <laughs> and the vocalist goes, "Well, I'm singing, so these got to be louder than everything else." You know, so the first thing that's got to go and the frequency range is the guitar, because in rock and roll, it's the lead vocal and snare are the loudest thing on the recording. Mm. That's a rule. <laughs> and uh, so, by the time that comes down, you know, the guitars the sweetness, the warmth, the heaviness, the fullness is gone. But when you're recording um, the lead tracks and stuff, when you can do it before the final vocals are down, it's it's just so much fun because they're just, you know, crank that stuff up. And whether you're in the room with the guitar speaker or whether you're in the control room, as a lot of people do, you know, it's, it's, it's a rush mm. uh, when you do that. And I can remember sometimes just closing my eyes and, just getting geared up and saying, all right, man, let's go, let's do it, you know, and, and just letting it rip. Uh, another memory I have, I think, is uh, it's, all, uh, it's on the next record, but for anything. Oh, sure. You know, it sure. just yeah. blasts out with these high notes, yep. and then it has this crazy run at the end, and we were playing around with some cool reverb and delay effects that they ended up even using something similar 
the final mix, but we were just, you know, playing around with it in the studio. Different engineer, Nick Diaz, a great guy. We had a good time too. And, um, but just some of those times when I had, I basically knew where I wanted to go and how I wanted to get there. I just had to get out of my own way and let it happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the engineers were good and quick and they knew that the quicker you could get it, the purer it was going to be. So they don't want to spend hours and hours because then it starts to get stale. So they're still, if you can't get it in a few takes, they're going to do as many comps as they can and cut it all together once you know what the idea is. And, and I would say, okay, cut a comp together and I'll memorize it, internalize it and see if we can nail it. If not, you know, we'll get as close to it, but then we'll just go with the one with the best ceiling. And that's kind of the process that we worked on. There's a little bit of a, you, there's a little bit more of a, a slight slapback uh, delay on the stuff on how the gods kill versus Lucifuge and the first album too. Was it? Yeah, well, the first album was very dry. Yeah. And that was yeah. by design. Yeah. Good, good way to say it. Yeah. And that was by design. Now it's, and that and that's relatively speaking, you know. Um, if you were went to the listen listen to the tracks isolated, you go, God, there's a ton of reverb and delay on here. But when you compared it to White Snake, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it sounded like there was none. <laughs> that's that's uh, yeah. The '88 album came out around the same time, didn't it? So that yep. would yeah that would have been uh, here I go again on my own still the night ever. exactly yeah. so that that stuff was already out there <laughs> you know well that's like that's that's like what I was talking about earlier you don't sound like Billy Duffy you don't sound like John no. Sykes you don't you're you're apart from those guys and it's mm-hmm. it's in my opinion in my we did, opinion, you know what we weren't listening to any of that we weren't trying to be any of that we were. For me, I was just trying to get the biggest, boldest sound that I could get out of the equipment that we had. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to get, I knew what sounds I liked in the rehearsal room, and I was trying to get as close to that as possible through all of the outboard gear. And it's just, microphones are different than our ears. You know, our ears, when we hear something coming out of a speaker, you know, we're we're hearing it a certain way and not only the sound in the speaker is only just one part of what we hear we're hearing so much of the reflection in the room and the refraction of the different sounds mm. you know and the character and the quality of the space in which the sound is being generated but a microphone does not hear the same way that our ear does so you're trying to take an electronic ear and then have it reproduced on another end going through all this electronic stuff and that's what is so difficult and challenging to do. Do you do you have do you have an album that you use as a measuring stick for recordings? Like you do you have an album that production wise, engineering wise, this No, album? no. I you know, I wish I did. I really I really do. It's a it's a good idea. Uh what I did a lot of uh, when I was doing Flesh Caffeine, is I was using um, Metallica's Black album. Hmm. Okay. And because uh, I was going, well, there's no way I could compete with this. This is a this is a million dollar album, <laughs> right? And they were 
you know, they were using Pro Tools for the first time and they had six studios going at once. And, you know, my, one of my engineers was an assistant on that album. So hmm. okay. he was always telling me about how they were doing things. And, and so I would listen to a lot of Metallica and, uh, you know, one of the engineers had a van with a good stereo in it. So we would, um, you know, burn a CD and then go and, and drive around to like in and out Burger or something and listen to the music <laughs> in the van to see. And Ruben did, I learned that from Ruben because he would always want to go take a ride in a car and listen to it in a different setting. Ah, uh, good point. You yeah. know, to see what it's doing and, and what's popping out and what's not working and, and what's cool. So we did a lot of that stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't have those seminal albums that, that I use. Anything that you want to promote, anything you want to hype, anything you there want to There is actually, right now I'm, you know, I'm working really hard at, uh, at Peabody in Baltimore. Sure. We're developing a rock and roll program. I've got an advanced rock band for, um, kids 12 to 18. And I've got an adult rock band down there. And uh, it's so funny because i got a new group in the adult uh, rock band. And the first couple, I've only been doing it for a few semesters. And the first time we were doing like Wild Thing and uh, Kryptonite and, <laughs> nice, right? you know, My Own Worst Enemy and that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but now i got a group of guys. And I came up, you know, with some Led Zeppelin and, you know, some Aerosmith and this and that. And I created this playlist. And they said, well, these are great songs. But, uh, you know, my only complaint, I said, okay, what are your complaints? They said, there's no Slayer. There's no Megadeth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going, this is Peabody, and you want to do Slayer and Megadeth? They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So we're doing like uh, Blood Red, Raining Blood, um, God, Angry Again, uh, I think, you know, Enter Sandman, you know, Mother. Cool. <laughs> it's just nuts. Uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, uh, Mr. Crowley, <laughs> Crazy Train. <laughs> uh, that's the adult group. The kids group, um, man, they're like little rock stars. You know, I got two girls and two boys. And the boy, one of the, the lead guitar player, we do everything from like Kansas Carry On My Wayward Son to Charlie Daniels, Devil Went Down to Georgia. He plays fiddle, he plays lead guitar, he plays drums. Nice. Um, we're going to do Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody and Under Pressure, uh, as, well, as well as Iron Maiden Trooper. <laughs> nice. We're doing Arctic Monkeys, Are You Mine? Uh, we're doing Amy Winehouse, Stronger Than Me. I mean, we're just all over the place. Sleetwood Mac, Landslide. I mean, we're doing all different kinds of stuff. Smash Mouth, All Star. You know, it's it's incredible. And this December, it's going to be the first uh, teenage rock band ever to play at Peabody since 1885. Oh, wow. Nice. And then my kids. So I'm really excited about that. That's got to be an awesome feeling. It is an awesome feeling. And uh, and they're great, you know, and they're great. And uh, the only other stuff I'm doing is, I, you know, I'm starting to get some fans that want me to come in and have John Christ drop a solo on their CD. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm totally 
into doing that. There was a group called Cough out of Virginia and another one called Fist, I think, out of St. Louis and trying to get some stuff done. The last time I did it was for a band called Every Time I Die. Mm. Sure. And uh, that was probably back in, I don't know, I want to say 2010 maybe, 2010 or 11. Um so I want to start doing more recording, more playing. I've been doing a lot of teaching. I teach banjo, mandolin, ukulele, guitar, bass. And uh, right-handed, left-handed, it doesn't matter. If it's got strings on it, I'll learn to play it and teach it. I'm also doing Skype lessons now and starting to get more active with social media like Instagram, the John Christ, and uh, Facebook, you know, John Christ. i the kids are saying, Facebook is for geezers. It's for older people. <laughs> they say, you know, we're, we use Snapchat and Instagram yeah. and you know, Twitter. I'm like, I thought Twitter was old. Some of them like Twitter, some of them don't. So I'm trying to increase my uh, what, digital footprint, as it were. Hmm. Uh, but, and I've, you know, I'm getting, um, you know, decent cameras for the web lessons. I actually taught a gal. I think she was um, in Hawthorne, California, and we were teaching, we were doing End of Time. And End of Time, and I think Mother, and Little Sweet Home Alabama, and she was great. We had a great time. So, um, you know, that's something that I want to do, but ultimately I want to play, uh, get back out and do some shows and do some more recording and a bunch of videos and um, just you know, play as often as I can, fill the world, my world with music as much of the time. Like I said, because when I'm playing my guitar, I'm not thinking about politics or bills or stress or, you know what I mean, money or any of that kind of stuff, worries, health. And when I'm playing, I'm just thinking about the music and I'm just listening and I'm just trying to express what I'm feeling and hearing in real time, and uh, the more people I can do that with, the more time I can spend with music, uh, the happier I am. And I think, uh, you know, I had somebody pay me a great compliment at a birthday party I played. I was dead sick. I didn't want to go, and a friend, a friend, how serious, you know, they were they were playing, and they said, you know, it's a 50th, surprise 50th birthday party for some guy. His wife is throwing it. And he's a huge Danzig fan, and she would just, like, die if he would come. And I said, I'm I'm sick, I got the flu. And he's like, well, could you just show up and say happy birthday? And I was like, oh, man. So I went up to say happy birthday, and I ended up playing for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And the guy was on stage with us, and he was shooting selfies and videos behind it. And, uh, you know, one of the guitar players had a brand new guitar and we do this version of Comfortably Numb Pink Floyd where, you know, we do dueling guitars and harmonies and it was, it was magic and I wasn't feeling all that well, but I had a good time. I had fun. You know, the music pulled me through. Good. You know, the, the music pulled me in and I looked around and the family was having so much fun that uh, this guy's birthday was, you know, I guess I totally made his night, you know, and um, the guy put this brand new Paulie Smith in my hand and it felt so good I just didn't want to put it down <laughs> and after I finally did you know I took over I think their second set I went and sat down and and uh, a woman came over and she said that was she said I just want to tell you I was crying when you were playing I'm like are you alright she said no it was beautiful she said you were 
she said, and this was, this was the ultimate compliment. She goes, the way you looked at that guitar and held it, I wish somebody would look at me and hold me that way. Oh, man. Wow. And I said, well, what about the songs and this and that? And she said, you know, that was, you were great, blah, 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 blah. But the way you and the instrument were just one thing together, that's, that's what drew me in. Wow. So that's more what it's about for me at this point. Wow. That's amazing, man. So I figure if I show up, I can do that. Now I realize that I don't overthink it. Just show up and something good's going to happen. Because had I stayed home in bed and watched TV, uh, I wouldn't have gotten out there. That guy would have had a good birthday party, but I wouldn't have blown his mind, and that woman wouldn't have cried when she heard me play. Wow. So it wasn't about me, right? It wasn't about me that time, and that's what I'm trying to get through my thick ego skull is it's, you know what? It's it's not always about you. It's about what might happen if you just show up and get out of your own way. Wow. All right, Dustin, I had fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks, John. I appreciate it.